Amen. Well, we are back this morning in Paul's letter to the Romans. And as we have remarked a number of times in the life of Covenant Baptist Church, in a word, the Bible is a story of two Adams, the first Adam and the last one. This week and next, Lord willing, we're going to be thinking quite deeply about the first and the last Adam from the pen of the Apostle Paul. I'm going to go ahead and say this now, kind of lay my cards on the table as I've studied Romans chapter 5, verses 12 and following. Perhaps you have thought about this before, but even so, we trust that the Lord will lead us to greater understanding in the coming weeks. This is a significant thing that we are going to consider today. Paul's understanding of the gospel Paul's understanding of justification is grounded in his understanding of covenant representation as he is going to lay out in Romans 5, 12 and following. His understanding of the gospel, of justification, how we would be declared righteous and reconciled to God is very much grounded in his understanding of covenant representation in Adam and then in Christ. So as we engage in this section of Romans, remember that we are considering what is at the heart of God's plan of redemption. The plan that existed from before the foundations of the world to save a people is what we are considering this week and next. Our salvation is very much in view. So nothing could be more important than these matters. May we learn. We're going to engage deeply. May we be more grounded in the faith as we leave here today and as we leave here next Sunday. If you leave and I leave this place today with a greater understanding, with a deeper appreciation for God's plan of redemption, for Adam's representation of us in his original sin, and then Christ's representation of us in his righteousness, our time will have been well spent. May we understand in greater ways the way that Jesus represents us. And may we see with greater clarity how our union with Jesus means, as we've been considering, that we are saved and that we will be saved. So let's look at the text this way. So if you have your Bibles with you, open them to Romans chapter 5. We're going to be considering, as I've already alluded to, Romans 5, 12 to 14. Today, God willing, we will look at verses 15 through 21 of Romans 5 a week from today. These two sermons, these two messages hang together in ways that I trust are clear to you, even as you have read the text. As you're making your way to Romans 5, 12 in your scripture, I want to continue to remind us of where we have been. You remember that Paul at the outset of his letter said that the gospel is the power of God for salvation, for everyone who believes. And this is because the gospel, the good news, is the message of what Jesus Christ has accomplished. And in the gospel, the righteousness that God gives to sinners is revealed. And that righteousness is given to sinners completely by faith, apart from anything they could ever do. This is the only way of salvation. This is because all human beings are under sin. All human beings are 
guilty before God. All human beings are incapable of being justified in God's sight through their own obedience. Salvation through faith in Christ apart from works is the only hope for mankind. Jesus fulfilled the requirements of the law for righteousness and he endured its curse. He paid its penalty. And then what he did, here's that representation piece, what he did is counted to sinners, is credited to sinners by faith. Paul, having explained these things and extolled these things, appeals to the Old Testament to illustrate that these things are true, to prove what he's saying. He appeals pointedly to Abraham, as you recall. Abraham was not justified by circumcision. He was not justified by works of the law. But he was justified apart from either of those things through faith in the promises of God that are realized in God's Christ. And as it was with Abraham, so it is with all the saints of God from all time. Therefore, beginning in Romans 5.1, Paul begins to say these things. Because we've been justified by faith apart from works, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ now and in the future. In Christ, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We can even, right now, as we suffer, rejoice in those sufferings, knowing that everything we endure will contribute to our eternal good and to our salvation, as well as the purposes of God. The only way that we can think like that and rejoice like that and hope like that is if the future is secure. And because of Christ, it is. God's love, Paul says, has been poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. And God's love is shown for us in that while we were still weak, unable to do anything, Christ died for us. Jesus died, Paul says, for the ungodly while we were still sinners. And so, since we have been justified by Christ's blood, says Paul, how much more will we be saved from the wrath of God by Christ? If, while we were God's enemies, we have been reconciled to God by the death of Jesus, how much more shall we be saved by Christ's life, his indestructible life? He ever lives and pleads for us. We rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have received reconciliation. Because of our union with Christ, by faith, all is well. And all will be well. With all of that in view, Let's look to our text for today, beginning in Romans chapter 5 and verse 12. Listen as I read. This is the word of God. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. 
but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. Amen. We thank God for his word today and every day. My plan for our time together this morning is simple. I have three points, and I'm going to give them to us one at a time. Point one. Some of these headings are long. I guess I'm just channeling my inner Puritan, right? So I'm going to try to say them plainly and maybe restate them for your benefit, especially if you're taking notes. Number one, Adam represented the entire human race, and his guilt and his sin are counted to us all. Let me repeat. Adam represented the entire human race. Semicolon. His guilt and his sin are counted to us all. Look at verse 12. Romans 5, 12 and following must be understood in the broader context of Paul's arguments. What's he arguing for? You should know the answer to that question. He's arguing for the doctrine of justification by faith in Christ apart from works. So Romans 5.12 and following must be understood in that context. This section, Romans 5.12 to 21, serves as the theological foundation for everything that has come before it. In particular, in this section... Paul is arguing for the doctrine of imputation. Let me explain what that word means. Imputation means that something is counted to you. Something is credited to you. Something is reckoned to you. Paul is arguing for that doctrine. In particular, he is arguing that Adam's sin in breaking the covenant that God made with him is counted to the whole human race. And Christ's righteousness is counted to those who believe in Him. That's his argument. Now how does Paul make this argument? He does this by establishing the legitimacy and the truth of covenant headship, of covenant representation, and by establishing the parallels between Adam and Christ. It's very clear. You can see this in verse 12 as plainly as I can. It is very clear that Paul understood Adam to have represented the entire human race. Adam's one act of disobedience is representative for the whole. His one act of disobedience is representative and it is the judicial ground for the condemnation of all those who are united to him. In other words, his one act of disobedience represents us all and is the judicial ground of the condemnation of all of mankind. Also, though, Jesus' obedience is representative and it is the judicial ground for the justification of everyone who is united to him. In other words, for all who call upon his name, for all who place their faith in Christ, for all who look 
away from themselves and trust Christ for righteousness and forgiveness and eternal life, His work is representative for you. He represents you. You stand in Him. And therefore, you are saved, you are safe, you are secure. That's the argument of the Apostle. Repeatedly in this section, we see that the actions of the one impact the many. We have to understand that. The actions of the one impact the many, either for life or death. This pattern, by the way, we'll probably think even more about this next week. This pattern of one representing the many is seen repeatedly throughout the Scriptures. But for our purposes here, particularly in verse 12, most pointedly we must see that all die because one sinned. All die because one sinned. Romans 5.12. These are just important things for our understanding. While we'll think a little bit about this, the corruption we inherit from Adam, the wreckage produced in the creation, all of that flows from Adam's first sin. That is absolutely true. And yet, in Romans 5.12, Paul is speaking directly to one thing. That one thing is the imputation of Adam's guilt to the entire human race. The point of Romans 5.12, is that Adam's guilt is counted to the entirety of humanity. Paul's point is that we are counted with Adam's guilt pertaining to his original sin, which is the breaking of the covenant that God made with him. That's the big deal. Adam broke the covenant. And in Adam, so did we. What is this covenant that God made with Adam? We read of it earlier, portions of it. We read from Genesis chapter 2 how God formed man from the dust. Notice the intentionality of the language of Genesis 2, 8 and 9. God made man from the dust. He breathes life into man and man becomes a living creature. And then God plants a garden in the east and then puts the man in the garden. And he puts him there for a particular purpose, to work it and to keep it. We're told immediately that there were two trees in the garden, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Again, God intentionally put Adam in the garden to work it and keep it. He was to perform this task. He and Eve were to fill the earth and subdue it. Adam was to obey the moral law, the law of nature that was written on his heart and into the fabric of creation, and most pointedly, there was a prohibition. Genesis 2, 16 and 17. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, He commanded him, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Really important for our purposes today. 
this sanction of death for breaking the covenant is far more than physical death, far more than natural death. That's not even the point of it. It was death on a spiritual level. This death would mean that human beings from the first moment of our existence were no longer in communion with God. Instead of communion with God, the relationship would be characterized by enmity, alienation, and wrath. In this covenant that God made with Adam, Adam represented us all. He could earn eternal life and blessedness for himself and all of us through obeying. Or he could plunge himself and all of us into spiritual eternal death through disobedience. And the test of Adam's obedience was very simple. He was not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The test of his fidelity, the test of the covenant was that. And of course, as we know, and the scriptures bear witness, Adam broke that covenant. Massively important. I'm trying to give some repeated sentences for us so that as we leave here today, it's clear in our minds. Adam's guilt is our guilt. And Adam's sin is our sin. And by sin, I mean that one act. Adam's guilt is our guilt. Adam's sin of breaking the covenant is our sin. He broke the covenant. In him, so did we. And so, because of that, we are subject to the penalty of the covenant that God made with Adam. This is Paul's argument in Romans 5, 12 and following. Now, you should be thinking, this is true of Christ's representation of us too. So don't only see the hopelessness piece. We're going to get here at the, before our time is finished. But through union with Christ, think about the language that we use. We've been saying Adam's guilt is our guilt. His sin is our sin. His covenant breaking is our covenant breaking. Well, through faith being united to Christ, when he becomes our representative, what do we say? His death is our death. His righteousness, our righteousness. His obedience, our obedience. His holiness, our holiness. These things, of course, are above us. We may ask rightly, how how can these things be? I was helped this week by these words from Robert Haldane. He said, it belongs not to us to inquire how these things can be. We receive them on the testimony of God. We take God at his word, right? Secret things belong to the Lord our God. But those things which are revealed belong unto us and our children. Everything that I've been saying up to now, we've been considering verse 12. That sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. In Adam, that's true. 
Let's look now to verses 13 and 14. We see verse 13 begins this way. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted where there is no law. Now, law in verse 13 is clearly referring to the Mosaic law, the giving of the law through Moses, which occurs most pointedly in Exodus chapter 20. Also, to be clear, people between Adam and Moses were sinners. That's obvious. I mean, it's what Paul's saying. Sin was in the world. Between Adam and Moses, people were sinners, and they were sinning. But, Paul says, sin is not counted where there is no law. That is, understand, sin is not imputed. It's not counted to a person and punished as a covenant violation where there is no law. This is exactly what Paul had said back in chapter 4 and verse 15 as well. Paul begins in verse 14. Yet, death reigned from Adam to Moses. We can see what Paul is doing. Adam broke the covenant that God made with him. There were specific commands and specific prohibitions given to Adam from the Lord in the context of a covenant. And through Moses, we know God would give the law, again, in the context of a covenant. Express commands in the context of a covenant. And so, breaking the law of Moses was like Adam's transgression. Breaking the law of Moses was sin that constituted a covenant violation for the Israelite offender. This is the language of Jeremiah 31, 32, for example, where the Lord talks about he's going to make a new covenant, not like the old one that he had made, which Israel broke, he says. Or the language of Hosea 6, 7, where Israel, like Adam, transgressed the covenant. Okay, so we understand that. Adam's situation. The giving of the law. Paul is speaking to this question, though. But what about people who lived after Adam and before Moses? What about them? They lived after Adam, but before the giving of the law. Why would they be subject to death? Why would they be subject to the penalty of the covenant that Adam broke? Answer. Huge for our understanding is that God counts Adam's sin and Adam's guilt to the entire human race. That's Paul's entire point. This is why death, not just physical, yes, physical, but not just physical, death, spiritual death, reigned from Adam to Moses because the guilt of Adam was counted to them. Adam's breaking of the covenant is our breaking of the covenant. His sin is our sin. His guilt is our guilt. All human beings, at the moment they begin to exist, bear the penalty of Adam's covenant. Question regarding the middle portion of verse 14. You can put your eyes there. Paul says, Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. Why does Paul say that? 
He says that the people who lived between Adam and Moses, their sin was not like the sin of Adam. I think you're probably tracking to give the answer already. Because Adam transgressed the covenant that God made directly with him. Express commands in the context of covenant. That's what Adam violated. Paul even uses two different words for sin in verses 13 and 14 to help bring this across. Your English translations probably pick up on this. You'll notice that the word sin shows up a number of times in these verses, but there's a different word in the middle of verse 14. The ESV and several other English translations render it the transgression of Adam. The NASB renders it the offense of Adam. Why does Paul use different words? Well, they have different emphases. The one term rendered sin is sin or moral failing in general. A breaking even of the law of God written in the heart, if you will. But then the other word rendered transgression denotes a covenant violation. That word throughout Scripture is used that way. This is the breaking of a covenant. In other words, Paul is saying there's two kinds of sin, effectively. One, sin that constitutes the direct breaking of a covenant between God and man. Two, sins that violate the law of God written on the hearts of all mankind. Both are sin, they're just different. For the people who lived between Adam and Moses, who had not directly broken a covenant like Adam, and who did not yet have the law like Israel did, why did death reign over them? Because God imputes Adam's sin and guilt to all people. Trust, we're clear. This is because Adam represented the entire human race, and so all people are subject to the penalty of the covenant that God made with Adam. The penalty of it. So that's all point one. And I understand that's heavy sledding, a little bit teachy. That's okay. It's good for us to understand the deep theological arguments that Paul is making. Because in these things, brothers and sisters, our salvation is anchored. This brings us, though, to point two, which will be briefer. Number two, there is nothing but hopelessness in Adam. There is nothing but hopelessness in Adam. So you know this like I know this. You're a human being living in a fallen world just like me. There are good things that we experience in this life. Amen? We've enjoyed some of them even this very week. And we all know, maybe not consciously in every moment, though consciously in many, we live and even when we are enjoying good things, there is always these haunting thoughts that will not leave our minds and hearts. There are always these fears that exist in the background of our lives. Many of us live waiting for the other shoe to drop because we know that in this fallen world, things fall apart. Things don't stay good for long. Then, most notably, there is the tyranny of natural death, physical death. It is the great gray cloud that hovers over our entire existence. It is the sovereign that rules over every man. Every man, every woman is born perishing. Every man, every woman will be put in a six-foot hole in the ground 
We know this. This is why the scripture bears witness that we are in bondage, in slavery to the fear of death our entire lives. And as bad as all that is, it's actually worse than we even think. The depth of our hopelessness is described well in our own confession of faith where we are told that because of the original sin of Adam, we as his children are now partakers of every kind of misery. Spiritual, temporal, and eternal. Now, God is gracious to all mankind. The scripture is clear about this. There is his restraining grace in the world. Things are not as bad as they could possibly be. Even in humanity, the image of God in us is marred tragically, but the image of God remains in man. God in his grace sends the rain even on the unjust. He causes the sun to shine even on those who are evil. But having said that, consider. From the moment a human being comes into existence, God regards that person as being out of communion with him. From the moment a human being comes into existence, because of Adam's guilt, because of Adam's sin, God regards that person as having forfeited his favor, as having forsaken his benevolence. For Adam, when Adam was created, upright, God entered into communion with him from the moment he made him. But since Adam's sin, human beings begin to exist. From the moment we begin to exist, we do so out of communion with God. Adam's sin is regarded as our sin, and so God withdrew from us as he withdrew from Adam. And as a result, we begin to exist in a state of spiritual and moral darkness. Destitute of anything that would ever lead us to delight in God. And prone in every way not to worship Him, but to worship ourselves and to worship the creation. The wreckage that Adam's breaking of the covenant brought is beyond our comprehension. We grasp at the leash of language to even describe it. As we sing here regularly, we are sinners poor and needy who are lost and ruined by the fall. Consider for just a second the utter hopelessness that this passage would bring were it not for the last clause of verse 14. Hopelessness, were it not for these words about Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. Which brings us to point three. The intervention of the Son of God in our salvation 
is an act of pure, sovereign, and wonderful grace. Say that again. The intervention of the Son of God in our salvation is an act of pure, sovereign, and wonderful grace. Grace, as you know, by definition, is unmerited favor. Adam, says Paul, was a type of the one who was to come. He pointed to, he foreshadowed, he prefigured a person who was coming later. In 1 Corinthians 15.45, Paul writes of the first Adam and the last Adam. The last Adam being none other than Jesus of Nazareth. God the Son incarnate. Our hope, beloved, is found in only this. As in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Adam is a type of the one who was to come. God designed and ordained similarities between Adam and Jesus. Adam, the way he's made, the way he represents us is not coincidental. It is not accidental. It's intentional. With God, there is no plan B. It's only plan A. Adam is the federal covenant head of the entire human race. And Jesus is the covenant head of the church, which is his body. Adam represented the entire human race. Jesus represents everyone who believes in him. God made Adam in his image. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Adam reflected God's being and attributes. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. Whoever has seen Him has seen the Father. Adam was given a task by God. Jesus, God the Son incarnate, was given a task by His Father. God told Adam to obey His command so that he might inherit, he might merit life. And it was the will of God from all time that God the Son would redeem a people through His obedience. In other words, beloved, Adam may be a type of Jesus, but he is nothing like Jesus. God be praised. Adam was given work to do and commands to obey, but his work and obedience were quite easy and quite simple when compared to what Christ would have to do. The circumstances were quite different for Adam and Jesus as well. You realize this. Adam is tempted. He's tested in paradise. Adam, in the time of his testing and his temptation, he lacked nothing because God had given him everything he needed. He had no needs. Every tree of the garden, every plant, every animal, everything were at his disposal. God had given it to him. Very different from what our Lord endured. The early verses of Matthew chapter 4 
we read these words. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit. This is God's plan, right? Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting, 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Jesus, unlike Adam, was tested and tempted in a wilderness, in an arid wasteland, not a paradise. Jesus, unlike Adam, was in need physically. He had not eaten for 40 days and was hungry. Remember, he's truly man. Satan tempted Jesus with the very same temptation as Adam. What is that? To abandon the command of God and to establish his own place of authority on his own terms. But even though Jesus was hungry, even though he had suffered, and despite how easy it would have been for him to comply with the evil one in that moment, he said, no. Adam had failed. Jesus succeeded. Consider the words of Paul in Philippians chapter 2, a well-known text to many. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or a thing to be taken, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus was in the form of God, yet he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped after, to be taken. He did not grasp after or take something that rightly belonged to him. Equality with God. But what about Adam? Well, when Adam listened to the evil one, when he heeded Satan's counsel, he sought to take something that wasn't his at all. He lawlessly took the fruit to become like God in his own mind. Adam, in his covenant headship, it did not require humiliation for him. And while he was required to be obedient, not to the point of death, whereas with Jesus, he left his heavenly throne. He condescended and took the form of a servant. He was born of woman, born under the law that he had given to redeem those who were under the law. And being found in human form, he humbled himself yet more by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is what was required of Jesus for him to be our covenant representative. And remember who he is. Marvel at Christ. The love of God for us in him. The love of Christ for us. His faithfulness to us to accomplish God's plan of redemption. The very one who humiliated himself this way is the one of whom Isaiah wrote in the year that King Uzziah died. I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up. Isaiah had a vision of God the Son. The train of his robe filled the temple. and Above him stood the seraphim. 
Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Or Ezekiel. What did Ezekiel write when he saw God the Son? And above the expanse over their heads, there was the likeness of a throne in appearance like sapphire. And seated above the likeness of a throne was a likeness with a human appearance. And upward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw, as it were, gleaming metal, like the appearance of fire enclosed all around. And downward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw, as it were, the appearance of fire. And there was brightness all around. Like the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud on the day of rain, so was the appearance of the brightness all around. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of God. And when I saw it, I fell on my face and I heard the voice of one speaking. That one is the one who was born in a manger and laid in a feeding trough. We have a lot of questions that we wish could be answered. But may we never get over the fact that we have a God who would take on flesh, live and die in order to save His people. Psalm 24, 7-10, we read it earlier today. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. It is this one, this King of glory, who was beaten and mocked and cried out from the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The differences, beloved, between the first and the last Adam is literally the difference between heaven and hell. When we stand before God's throne on the day of judgment, we will do so as individuals, that's true. But we will do so represented by either the first Adam or the last one. There is no other way. We will stand before God's throne in Adam or in Christ. And to be in Adam is to be counted with Adam's sin and therefore to bear the full penalty of the covenant that Adam broke. To be in Christ, though, is an altogether different proposition. To be in Christ is to be counted with His righteousness. It's to be set free from the curse of the covenant that Adam broke. It's to be given, most pointedly, access to eat of the tree of life. The Bible hangs together beautifully. It is one cohesive whole. You remember at the end of Genesis chapter 3, we heard it read today. These words, He drove out the man. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, He placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. In other words, Adam, because he had broken God's covenant, he no longer had access to life. He no longer had access to eat of the tree of life. That's over. We've traced this theme before. I'm not going to labor it today. But you know that as God, in His plan of redemption, 
is dealing uniquely with Israel, calls them out, makes them a people, and he tells them to build this thing called the tabernacle, right, where his presence would uniquely dwell with them. You know that the most interior place in the tabernacle and what would be the most interior place in the temple complex was called the Holy of Holies. It was where the Ark of the Covenant resided. It was where God's presence uniquely was in mercy to forgive sins. There was a curtain that God instructed his people to make that would separate them from that space. What was on that curtain? The exact things that were described in Genesis 3.24. Cherubim and a flaming sword. You don't have access here. We also know as we fast forward many centuries in redemptive history, when Christ hangs on the cross, humiliated, many things occur. One of them though, that very curtain in the temple in Jerusalem is split in two from top to bottom. We now have access to the throne of grace. We have been reconciled to God through the work of Jesus Christ. But there's more we can say. Remember that tree of life. Adam was driven from the garden, doesn't have access to it anymore. That tree of life does not show up again in the Scripture to the very end. Revelation chapter 2, Jesus Himself says to the one who conquers, to the one who endures, I will grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. Revelation 22, the last chapter of the Scripture, reads this way. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face and His name will be on their foreheads. What a contrast to the condition that we have in Adam. Alienation, condemnation, wrath, enmity, no communion. Listen to those words. They will see His face and His name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. Now, who are those? who will have the right to eat of the tree of life. Adam was driven from it. So were we in Adam. Who has access? Revelation 22, 14. Write it down. Listen. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Blessed are those who wash their robes. They are the ones who can eat of the tree of life and enter the city by the gates. Now what are those robes and what's the washing of the robes? What's all that about? Glad you asked. Revelation chapter 7 9 to 14. Just listen. Marvel at God's word. Marvel at his plan to save you. A wretch like me. After this I looked. And behold, a great multitude that no one can number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes 
with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes? And from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Those who have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb are those who are given access to eat of the tree of life, who will enter the city by the gates. Thanks be to God for the work of Jesus Christ, the new and better Adam, the last Adam, who undid everything that the first Adam ruined. We have gained more in Christ than we lost in Adam. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. The guilt of Adam's sin is counted to us, but brothers and sisters, by sheer grace, apart from anything that we have ever done or could do, God has counted to us by faith the perfect holiness, righteousness, and satisfaction of Christ. And as we've said before, it is as though we have never sinned or been sinners, and it is as though we have been as perfectly obedient as Christ was obedient for us. That is good news. And we can leave here today with peace in our hearts and in our souls, knowing that as we stand here today justified, we will be finally saved because Christ is our representative. Let's now close in prayer.